Welcome back to the Christ in Culture. This is Steve. And this is Clint. Clint, it's been a week, and I am happy to tell you that uh, I'm not happy. I just I wasn't able to watch it. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> it's it's okay. Thanks thanks for being honest though. Right up front, just like yeah, no, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I thought about it, and I was like, I'm gonna do it. And then I didn't. And then I was like, it's okay. I'll just listen to the entire soundtrack. And then I didn't do that either. I listened to, I think, one song. Which song? Do, do you know which song? I don't even remember. I oh think I was, like, I was like on my way into work this morning. And then I was like, don't worry. I'll watch it after work. It's uh, three, three before, hours long. <laughs> yeah. And then that I realized that and was like, well, I'm just going to tell Quint that I failed in this venture. And um, I'll watch it another time. Oh, that is so funny. Yeah. So anyway, that's totally fine. We will. Uh, you'll be the test subject, I guess, the unindoctrinated test subject. It's true. I am utterly and completely unbiased. I mean, <laughs> unbiased in a lot of things in life, but in this one particular case, yeah, unbiased. Cool. Well, for those of you who have no clue what we're talking about, it means you probably didn't listen to last week's episode. Because this is part two or act two of our episodes on Hamilton, the Broadway musical. So we're going to be talking about the different lyrics and the story structure and stuff like that and how we can see Christ revealing himself to us from that musical. Right. And so if you haven't listened or watched, I suppose you should do that on the last week's episode. But I mean... Is it required to listen to Act One before this episode, Clint? You have to. You tell me. I feel like you'd be pretty out of the loop if you didn't know what was going on, but you could probably manage. So I would say, if you really want to know what's going on, go check out the last episode. If you really, really want to know what's going on, go watch the musical. It's on Disney Plus now, so you don't have to pay the full five hundred plus per seat to watch it in New York or wherever. So it's easier than ever. Just use your Disney Plus account and watch it for, what, seven bucks or whatever it is. Don't guilt me, Clint. All right. I already knew I messed up. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be shade at you. That was just supposed to be like, just go do it. It's good. And everything will make more sense once you do. Awesome. Yeah. And I was, like, I was actually thinking about that on my way home from work today because now that I have seen it twice, I feel like I can appreciate so many more songs better just because you can see like I can see in my head the the emotions portrayed by the characters and the movements that they were doing which I didn't understand before mm. and it just it adds so much to it where you don't get that from the soundtrack right right so like we did last week for all of you huge musical fans I'm going to go ahead and break down some of my favorites and then we'll go into a few themes if you could care less what I thought of this musical, go ahead and go into the chapters down below. If you're using an app that has chapters, you can skip over this part. But if you're interested, feel free to listen to what I have to say. For act two, my favorite characters. Again, I'm gonna have to go with Eliza, played by Philippa, aka Pippa Sue. That is Hamilton's wife, Alexander Hamilton's wife. And actually, I was checking out a little mini episode from Forte Catholic the other day, and Taylor Schroll, who we've had on the show before, if you like Taylor and his podcast, feel free to check out the episode we did with him last fall on Star Wars. 
But he had a guest on, Liv Harrison, who was talking about how the title Hamilton doesn't necessarily imply Alexander, even though that's kind of immediately what we assume, because it doesn't have a first name. So it could be Eliza, who this uh, Liv Harrison was arguing that she thought the true heroine behind the whole thing was Eliza and that the, the allusion to Hamilton was supposed to make us think it was Alexander. But when we get to the end, the second half of the musical, we realize it's actually Eliza. So that's just kind of her uh, interpretation. I don't think it's terribly far off. I do think Alexander is supposed to be the main character, obviously, but right. El- Eliza is the rock star and she's the true North, I guess, if you want to use that terminology. Right. So she's my favorite character. Second one is Thomas Jefferson, played by David Diggs. He has the fastest raps in this musical. And I believe, I think the stats said it was the second fastest rap section in Broadway history or something like that. It's pretty close. It's either second or first. Okay. Wow. And then same as last week, my other favorite, the third favorite, is George Washington, played by Christopher Jackson, who we briefly mentioned last week might have some elements of a Christ figure, but it's not super strong. So those are my favorite characters and actors that'll be coming up in this one. And then as far as songs, I had two that just really like shake me every time in this one, which are One Last Time, which is George Washington's kind of like goodbye song in this. And then Burn, which is Eliza's song after she finds out about Alexander's affair, which we'll be getting into today so those are super epic songs and we will definitely be talking about both of those here in a second the next thing i want to dive into is themes like i said last week typically we talk about themes at the end of the podcast but just with the way things work i think it's more beneficial in, in this episode to talk about them towards the beginning and i think there's actually a lot of them in this second act so I'll try and briefly go over the ones we talked about last week, but more focus on the ones that are new. So the first one is the idea of loss. There's a lot of death in this musical and pretty significant and and painful death. And we see how that really shapes, especially the Hamilton family, but Alexander specifically. And so that's a huge one that comes in. Favorite theme, I think, is probably the idea of forgiveness and that actually goes into some of the songs we'll talk about at the end, but just the power of forgiveness and the lyrics they use later on that we'll be talking about is the unimaginable. So it's unimaginable to forgive certain things. And yet we see that forgiveness happening in this musical. So one of the reasons why Eliza is so amazing. So the next thing is anger and revenge, kind of the opposite of that. And we see that Several characters thrive off of this revenge, which actually feeds into the next thing, which is pride and honor. Because they're so prideful, they seek revenge and are constantly angry. And because of that, they find themselves in duels, even saying lyrics like, it's, it's me or him, where it comes down to this, this challenge of neither of us can be in this world at the same time, which leads ultimately to death. So you have pride, revenge, dueling and death kind of like these themes that transition from one to the other and from death comes back to that first theme of loss this this reminds me of that whole like it's me or him kind of thing reminds me of the difference between jealousy and envy Uh, i heard a homily uh, 
probably a couple months ago that talked about this and it talks about how jealousy is the desiring something at someone else's loss. So when you're jealous of someone, you, you want it, but you don't want someone else to have it, if that makes sense. Whereas envy is recognizing someone else has something that is good and you also want to experience that good. So one is kind of good. I've actually heard the definitions the opposite where envy is the bad one and jealousy is the good one. Either way, the idea is that one of them is where you have to take from someone else in order for you to gain. And I think a lot of the times that's kind of how we envision God, where it's like either us or him. Right. And that's not how that works. The next theme I want to bring up is love, family, and faithfulness. Obviously, like I already alluded to, there is an affair that happens. And so we see from the end of Act 1, Hamilton's children are growing up and we'll see a little bit of his oldest son, Philip, and then also the affair and what happens with their family from there. Also, like we alluded to last week, there's the kind of rivalry between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr and how they have these two extreme opposing sides of how to handle life and their situation. And then an interesting one that you might be able to comment on is Throughout the musical, probably one of the biggest themes that we hear is the idea of time. And especially in Act 2, we get the sense that Alexander Hamilton thinks he can fix everything. And it's this idea that we are our own salvation. He even says that, like, he will be his own salvation. And this reminds me of the Pelagian heresy, Pelagianism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to speak to that since you are our resident theologian? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the idea that we can somehow earn our salvation, right? And in a certain sense, like that heresy, I think plays out mostly in, I guess, probably more in our modern Catholic world in like the sin of scrupulosity, right? Which is this fear of you needing, needing to do everything right. Somehow our actions will get us into heaven. Now, of course, we as Catholics believe that it is by both works and faith that we are saved, but it is ultimately by grace alone, right? So we can never actually earn ourselves. We could never do everything right. And even if we did do everything right, we would still fall short of heaven. It is purely by God's grace by which we are saved, but it is both faith in Jesus Christ and participation. Is that kind of what you wanted me to get at? <laughs> that, that's, that's exactly it. And I was just going to say yeah. that the way you're describing it, even with our actions, not necessarily mm -hmm. having a result in it, but like God wants us to participate in our salvation, right? That's right. why he made so many tangible, physical ways for us to interact with our faith and with him. But even within that, you mentioned how grace ultimately is where the salvation comes from because grace is what motivates us to take those actions and it's what makes those actions beneficial or what's the word I'm looking for? Fruitful, I think is probably yeah, a better efficacious, word. Efficacious. Yeah. Yeah. Efficacious. So it's, it's grace that motivates them or is the catalyst for them and also what makes them effective. Right. Yeah. And, that, and that's what I was going to kind of get at too, is obviously like it is the idea that we are participating in salvation, right? We are participating in the divine life of Christ. And that's sort of what the works are, is that salvation is also fundamentally a changing of us, which requires us to actually participate in that salvation, to choose it, to believe in it, to trust in God, 
but to receive his grace and actually live that grace out. Yeah, exactly. So like I said, that idea of time and running out of time, forcing us to be the cause of our own salvation is going to be a huge part of this act too. And then the last theme continuing from week one of this episode is the hero's journey, which we briefly talked about last week. The hero's journey is something we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, but essentially it is the, the underlying concept of what we as humans find entertaining and desiring in a, a story, uh, a story of a hero especially, or a fantasy story. We kind of went through some of the, the steps last week, but we really see most of them happening in this act too. So last week was the call to adventure, the call outside of yourself and into the new world, meeting of a mentor who we thought was Washington or maybe at times Aaron Burr. But this week, we really dive into the challenges and temptations, especially the temptations, as we'll find out, the roadblock or death. In this case, not necessarily a, a death in the sense of him dying, although that is part of the story, obviously. It's, I mean, look at history. You, you know he dies. <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah, he's still not around. Yeah, yeah. But the death that I'm talking about here, specifically the death from the consequences of his mistakes and his sins. And so we see him suffering and his family suffering, but then there's a resurrection. There's this comeback and that's where the forgiveness comes in and we'll see that. And then there's a transformation where he actually seems to become a different person for a while. And he seeks atonement and forgiveness, especially with his wife, Eliza. And then there is a return home, which we will see towards the end. With that, are we ready to dive into these songs? Uh, yeah, you take the lead. Cool. I was telling Steve before, there's actually more songs in the second half, but since we set so much stuff up last week, there's going to be less songs that we actually talk about. So we'll kind of give brief summaries here, but the, the ones that we do talk about, we'll probably go into a little bit more detail, I think. So the first song in act two is called What Did I Miss? And that's where we introduce Thomas Jefferson. He's been in France this whole time. It's actually played by the same character that played uh, Marquis de Lafayette in the first act. And then James Madison, who also was a character in the first act. So we see the three friends of Hamilton in act one are now his two enemies in act two and his son. So the three actors kind of switch over to different roles. So we see those two, we see Jefferson and Madison and the political division in how the nation is being formed and all the drama that comes with that all centered around contention with Hamilton himself. And then we see cabinet battle number one, which is literally a rap battle between Jefferson and Hamilton about what to do with war debts. And the rap battle is like facilitated by George Washington, hmm. which is pretty clever. We'll see that come up later again. And there's a cabinet battle number two as well. And then we're going to get into the first song that I kind of want to talk about, which is take a break. And this is another big Eliza song. And this one, I think, teaches a lot about family time and proper Sabbath. Mm. Obviously, Take a Break already alludes to that. So we'll walk through some of the lyrics here. And then if you have any commentary, feel free to jump in, Steve. Uh, yeah, I'll probably talk about Sabbath a little bit, but let's, let's see where this goes. Cool. We'll start with some lyrics from Eliza. So this is Eliza to Hamilton. She says, take a break, Hamilton. I am on my way. Eliza, there's a little surprise before supper and it cannot wait. Hamilton, 
I'll be there in just a minute. Save my plate. Eliza. Alexander. It's Philip's ninth birthday. And he wants to show his dad that, that he wrote a song. And so we see Alexander Hamilton so preoccupied with his work that he's not willing to take a break, even though it's his son's birthday. Mm. A little bit later in the song, we hear from Angelica. She now lives in London with her new husband. And so she's writing to Alexander. And this is what she says later in the song via letter. I know you're very busy. I know your work's important, but I'm crossing the ocean and I just can't wait. And then later, Eliza and Angelica both tell him, take a break. Hamilton, you know I have to get my plan through Congress. Eliza and Angelica, because now she traveled to the U.S. again, so they're both talking to him. Run away with us for the summer. Let's go upstate. And then a little bit later in the song, Eliza says, look around, look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. And then Angelica sings at the same time, if you take your time, you will make your mark. Close your eyes and dream when the night gets dark. Take a break. So that's what we got. Do you want to comment on any of that or talk about the Sabbath? I mean, obviously, I think, I think that there's a lot to be spoken about here. When like, we as humans are made to take a break, right? So obviously, we are made to work, right? Like you obviously don't want to be slothful by any stretch of the imagination, but that God, even when he establishes the Sabbath and he says, make sure you take this day for prayer, you take this day for rest, that that's something that is actually needed by human beings. Like we need that time of leisure, that time to make sure we're dedicating to God and dedicating to our family. The idea of Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that like God recognizes and actually establishes in the law because of how important it is. It's interesting because even when you start to begin to study just like a little bit of psychology and all these other things, we did a book study. We do a book study every summer, except for this summer because of COVID. But at my office, we do a summer book study. And last year, we did a book called Bored and Brilliant. Now, Bored and Brilliant is written by a secular author, but she starts digging into this whole idea. And so what she learned, and I think that is interesting because it's something that God has actually handed over to us, that she had time off because she was on maternity leave. And so she was very bored for a long time. And so whereas before she was sort of having a, she would have a lot of creative blocks because she was go, 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 go. And she was always working and always thinking. And then when she actually took time away, she no longer had these creative blocks. Uh, she started having a lot more creative ideas because she was able to actually start processing the information of all of the years and months prior. And what she ended up doing was going on this long, basically journey of studying psychology about how we as humans actually need moments of rest and what she calls meditation, but we would understand is like going to prayer, mm-hmm. but just time to actually process. And that like our brains, like for us to be actually effective, for us to be creative, for us to actually be good at working, we need to take time to be bored, to be meditative, to, to be at rest. And it actually allows our brains and like allows us to be more productive. And I think God knew that. And it's why he tells us why the Sabbath is so important is because he recognizes that for us to be who we're made to be, we need to take that time. Well, I think that's hinted at in the the last line there where it says, close your eyes and dream when the night gets dark, take a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we see in our, in our dreams, that's where our creative 
juices kind of start to flow, you know, because we're finally allowing ourselves to relax. Right. And it's also, I think, helps us recognize our right priorities, right? You have here family time and Sabbath. And I think there's something true there of like, what is our priority? Like our first priority is to God. So the Sabbath is like a day of prayer. Like it's time to actually meditate with God, to talk to him, but then also spending our times with our families and our loved ones. Because ultimately, as great as it is to work and like have the ability to work and to like build the future or whatever it is that we're doing, our families are really more important. That's like our greatest legacy is our family. Uh, the family is the fundamental building block of society. And so they're important. And so like our friends are the family we choose, right? These things are all very important. And we want to make sure we're spending time with them. I actually have friends of mine who have eight kids and they ensure that, and I've always respected them and admired them, but they make sure that Sunday, like the Sabbath is a different day for their children than any other day of the week. And they're like, we basically work six days a week so that we truly Sabbath on Sunday because we want to instill in our children the idea that Sabbath, that Sunday is a different kind of day, that it's it's fundamentally different. Yeah, that's that's really hard to do, you know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool that they're they're doing that because that is something that we as Americans, I think, struggle with a lot. Yeah. And I, I think kind of moving forward here, one of the issues when we don't Sabbath is mm-hmm. that we tend to find ourselves in situations where we are more susceptible to temptation, I think. Yeah. And that actually leads into the very next song, which is Say No to This. So while the family is away on vacation, Alexander is tempted by this woman who comes to him looking for help and he has an affair with her. Her name is Maria Reynolds. It's kind of weird because in the, the musical, Maria is played by the same actress as Peggy Schuyler, who's the younger sister of his wife in the first act. Mm. So it's kind of weird seeing her switch and now they're having an affair. And her husband that ends up catching them is actually uh, Mr. Schuyler. They're, I guess, Alexander's father-in-law. So it's it's kind of weird like seeing the actors switch around and, and act too a little bit. But this is kind of what it sounds like. So Maria comes to him and says this. My husband's doing me wrong, beating me, cheating me, mistreating me. And then suddenly he's up and gone. I don't have the means to go on. Alexander says, so I offered her a loan. I offered to walk her home. She said, Maria, you're too kind, sir. Alexander, I gave her 30 bucks that I had socked away. She lived a block away. From this, you get kind of the intention that it it doesn't seem like he actually wanted to have an affair. He actually intended on trying to help someone. But as we talked about last week, the good intention doesn't justify the sin that follows. And we we see that he actually doesn't want this. And he recognizes that because at this moment, she offers to let him inside. And he says, that's when I began to pray, Lord, show me how to say no to this. I don't know how to say no to this. We see he turns to prayer, which in itself, you know, is kind of a theme here. But the idea that he's recognizing I am just too weak right now. I don't know how to say no. Lord, show me. I think that's just a beautifully honest prayer for us, like in in the midst of temptation, whatever that temptation is. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think it's also important, though, to receive it. One of the things that I think is is so interesting is um, in every moment of temptation, God gives us sufficient grace to to reject the temptation, right? Mm -hmm. 
but it's ultimately up to us whether or not we we choose it or not yeah and and he chooses the or not option here yeah yeah and later he goes on to say i wish i could say that was the last time i said that last time it became a pastime and so we see and he admits later on this goes on for months i think it was like 6 months i could be making that number up but i think it was 6 months and later after he gets busted by the husband the husband blackmails him he goes back and yells at her and in in his like panic he says i am helpless how could i do this and he recognizes like how like appalled he was at at what he did but it wasn't until he was blackmailed that he finally like his eyes were opened again so this this becomes like i said a major theme of one of his first like roadblocks or or death or temptation that we talked about earlier on. It's actually really interesting. And I, I don't mean to tangent off too much, but I was just listening to a Norbertine priest by the name of Father Sebastian. And it was a three-part series he did on mercy for Lent, but I, I was listening to it this week. And he actually is talking about God's justice and his mercy and how they can't be in contention with each other because he is both infinitely just and infinitely merciful. Mm-hmm. And you can't be infinitely both if they're somehow in contention with each other. Yeah. And a big part of that is he actually kind of starts talking about Aquinas. And this sort of reminds me just in what he's saying, and that oftentimes we want enough mercy to be forgiven of our sin, but we don't want to accept enough mercy to be freed from the sin, mm-hmm. which is like where judge where where's like justice comes in, like the idea of like actually having to uproot something in our lives and sometimes like justice actually brings that to forbear and i'm not saying blackmail is good but i think <laughs> that like that idea of like having having somebody like oh wow like i actually have to face my sin it, it's not just god forgive me for doing this it's like now i have to change what i'm doing and there's like enough mercy in that situation and he's and, he, and at that point he actually started realizes like, how could I do this? You know, like, I'm helpless. Like, he's actually brought to a point where potentially, and I obviously haven't seen it, so, but I presume perhaps that there is a sense of actually being freed from it more than just being forgiven of it. The greater mercy might be happening. So perhaps we will see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. So let's go ahead and jump into the next song called The Room Where It Happens. And so we go back to Burr. Hamilton and kind of the the other three main political figures here. But Hamilton meets with Jefferson and Madison to reach an agreement on what they've been talking about from the cabinet battle earlier on. And Burr is jealous because he is always left out when it comes to big decisions because he's not in the cabinet, right? He doesn't have any serious authority in the government and he's super jealous of Hamilton. And so he decides to start being more like Alexander and he'll do whatever it takes to be in the room where it happens. And that's where the the title for the song comes from. So Hamilton says this to Burr after getting everything he wanted in the agreement. He says, when you got skin in the game, you stay in the game. You don't get a win unless you play in the game. Well, you get love for it. You get hate for it. You get nothing if you wait for it, wait for it. Making fun of Burr, obviously, because that was Burr's song from from last week in Act One, where he's, mm-hmm. I'm willing to wait for it, you know? Yeah. And so Hamilton's saying, you have to risk something in order to get something in this situation, right? You can't just sit back and do nothing. And this goes back to what we were talking about last week with not being afraid to take action. And sometimes taking action is risky. 
we see that when we talk about like standing up for what is right or just a lot of the times you're going to get backlash, but there is a little bit of, there's a little bit of fear and hesitation there, but you're not going to achieve anything if you don't do anything in that. Right. So with that, Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, and Washington all sing together. What do you want, Burr? If you stand for nothing, Burr, then what do you fall for? It's kind of that same line from before. And then Burr slowly shifts to being more aggressive and hostile. And he like slows the song down and he sings, I want to be in the room where it happens. And this is where we see him finally deciding what he wants. So we see a shift in Burr. And that's going to bring us to Skylar Defeated. So this is talking about Mr. Skylar. So Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy's father, Alexander's father-in-law, who was a senator for New York. Right. Burr sees a chance to be senator by defeating him. And so he does. He campaigns against Alexander's father-in-law, defeats him, knocks him out of position, and Burr steps in. After their little argument between Burr and Alexander about what Burr did, Burr says, I swear your pride will be the death of us all. Beware it goeth before the fall. So obviously this is kind of a flash to the fall of man. Right. So he's saying, beware it goeth. So talking about pride, beware pride goes before the fall. Right. To me, this was kind of an illusion of the idea that, as we say as Catholics, pride is the root of all sins Mm -hmm. because it's our, our pride that leads us into those. Do you want to speak on that briefly? Yeah, I mean, pride fundamentally is the sin that removes us. I mean, all sin removes us from God, but but pride is the false notion that we can somehow do it without God. And all other sin stems from the root of pride, which is removing God, being like, I can do it without God. So that's kind of why it's known as the root of all sin, because almost all sin encompasses on some level pride. I mean, pride was also the first sin, right? Original sin, there was sort of this pride to disobey God, right? To be living in paradise and to to say, I'm going to do not what God has asked me to do. Do the one thing God has actually told me I can't do. Pride by kind of its nature and sin by its nature is that they have the entire garden. And instead of focusing on all the blessings and everything that God has given them, they like focus in on the one thing they can't have. And I think that's ultimately kind of what temptation and sin looks like in life. No, that's good. Thanks for for covering that. So this is going to bring us into the next song, which is Cabinet Battle Number 2, which I referenced before. This is another rap battle between Jefferson and Alexander. And this one is about the French Revolution and whether or not America should get involved in that. Check your history books. You'll figure out what happens. (laughs) But from there, we get into a pretty awesome song called Washington On Your Side. And this is basically everyone being jealous of Alexander because Washington supports him. So this is all about that. There's a few things in here. I think I'll bring a few up kind of briefly, but one of the things that Jefferson says is he's talking about how there's consequences to their actions. And let's just go into the lyrics. It says, every action has its equal opposite reaction. Thanks to Hamilton, our cabinets fractured into fractions. Try not to crack under the stress. We're breaking down like fractions. We smack each other in the press and we don't print retractions. I get no satisfaction witnessing his fits of passion. Somebody give me some dirt on this vacuous mass so we can at last unmask him. I'll pull the trigger on him. Someone load the gun and cock it. And so he's saying like, 
we need to take him out, basically. But before he does that, he recognizes our cabinet is so messed up that we're attacking each other and we have no sense of guilt or the fact that we're doing anything wrong. We don't print retractions. But then he says, like, I don't get any satisfaction from this. And then he says, right, let's go take him out. So he kind of switches back and forth immediately going into that. And so we see this, this idea of just like complete chaos in, in all of them and, and just sacrificing their morality to take each other down. Which goes to our next part where Jefferson says, if there's a fire you're trying to douse, you can't put it out from inside the house. And I think this is probably the most insightful thing of this whole song because it reminds me of the idea of sometimes you need someone else outside of your kind of like bias bubble to help examine your life from outside the situation. Right. Like an accountability partner or a spiritual director or even a counselor. And I just think that's something important to, to have because sometimes we, we tend to lie to ourselves that a situation is not as bad as we think or we just don't understand or we can't do something. And so we need someone from outside to help us out a little bit. But let's go ahead and go into, like I said, one of my favorite songs in this whole act. I have a lot of lyrics I want to break down from this one. So hopefully it's not obnoxiously long, but it's called One Last Time. So this is Washington's goodbye. He steps down in the hopes of showing the nation and the world an example of humility and peace. Mm -hmm. Rather than running again, he steps aside, knowing that this is going to give Thomas Jefferson a shot at the presidency. So Hamilton says, Sir, I don't know what you heard, but whatever it is, Jefferson started it. Whatever you say, sir, Jefferson will pay for his behavior. I'll use the press. I'll write under a pseudonym. You'll see what I can do to him. So Hamilton, before he even knows what's going on, is like, whatever is going on, it's Jefferson's fault. Let's take him out. Just immediately making assumptions. Washington says, one last time. Relax, have a drink with me one last time. Let's take a break tonight and then we'll teach them how to say goodbye. To say goodbye, you and I. I want to talk about what I've learned, the hard-won wisdom I have earned. Hamilton. Mr. President, they'll say you're weak. Washington. No, they will see we're strong. And so it's this idea that stepping aside and, and being humble Hamilton calls weakness, Washington calls strength. And this actually reminds me of a podcast that you and I did a while back on Warhorse. Okay, right. Warhorse, where we talked about right. humility and what it means to be humble and meek. That episode is called Dem Meek Boys, if you guys want to check that out from, I think, last season. Yeah, it's a while ago. Yeah, throwback. Okay, so this idea of like contradiction between meekness and humility people perceive it as being weak, but actually it's strength. And this is what Christ said too. Another reason why I think Washington has a few characteristics of our Christ figure here. So Hamilton says, why do you have to say goodbye? Washington, if I say goodbye, the nation learns to move on. It outlives me when I'm gone. Like the scripture says, everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. They'll be safe in the nation we've made. And this is a reference to Micah chapter four. Uh, if you want to look that up. But to me, this is, again, a Christ figure action where Jesus establishes his church and then leaves. Washington establishes his nation and then leaves, right? He wants something that is going to survive even after he, he has to leave. So I see a little bit of overlap there. Yeah. And it's also like, I mean, Washington recognizes that, I mean, he can almost be at this point in actual history. I mean, he can almost be a 
essentially a king. I mean, he could just probably win every election until he passes away mm -hmm. and almost be like an idol. And I think what he's trying to point is that like the, the framers of the constitution, right? The, the, the founders, like they wanted the nation to not be reliant on one person. <laughs> and I think he knows like if he continues to run, then like the people will start to look to him almost as like a, a God figure. Yeah. And so I think that, yeah, I kind of, I understand your total illusion too, but I also think that there's also an aspect of like, he doesn't want to be made a false idol and he doesn't want the, the nation to sort of equate freedom and liberty with like his leadership. For sure. Yeah. And that goes back to the, uh, him trying to be humble. Yeah. Which actually leads also into this farewell letter that he has Alexander write. And it's kind of a cool scene where they sing it together. I don't know if this is actually the letter that Washington wrote, but it doesn't rhyme or kind of fit with some of the other lyrical plays in the, in the musical. So I wonder if it actually is. But anyways, I thought there were some cool things. So I'm just going to pull out a few highlights. The very beginning says, though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I'm nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think, if probable, that I may have committed many errors. Again, this just goes to him being humble and he's saying, even though I can't recognize anything that I did wrong on purpose, I'm sure there is. And I, I know myself well enough to know that I make mistakes. And then it goes on to say a little bit later, after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion as I myself must soon be to the mansion's rest. I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promise myself to realize that sweet enjoyment of partaking. And so he says, whatever those mistakes are, they're soon going to be resigned to oblivion. They're going to be gone as I myself will soon be to my mansion to rest. And I, I think it's interesting because he says the, the mansion, not my mansion. And so it's kind of this idea that yes, he's going home to rest, but he's also going home to rest, if you know what I mean. Like he's, he's going to the eternal house. He's going to heaven. And I think this is an allusion to that, where not only is this a goodbye from his presidency, not only is this a goodbye to Hamilton, this is like, this is his goodbye. And this is also the last time we see him alive in this musical. So I, I think there's something to that as well, where he's recognizing that all of our accomplishments and everything we've done will fade with us. And ultimately, the things that we do on earth are not as long lasting as we perceive them to be, I think. I agree with you. Also, just to answer your question, this is actually Washington's farewell address. It is. Yeah, it's like his actual farewell address. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm glad I picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the ending of this song, though, is the the cast kind of sings in the background, George Washington's going home. And that's just another allusion to what I was just talking about, where he's going home, but he's also going home. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we'll kind of see that play out. So after he steps aside, we go into our next song, which goes back to King George called I Know Him. And this is King George being confused that Washington is stepping away Kind of like you said, because he's like, this guy could be king. Why would anyone do that? And instead, he mocks John Adams, who actually wins the presidency. And he is excited to see him and the whole nation fall apart. And we kind of see, as we talked about last week, the chaos of King George and this almost demonic figure for our story. I kind of also like want to want to bring out just with that, just the humility too, and recognizing like 
if George Washington would have been president for his life, it probably wouldn't have been so bad. Like he might have been a good guy, but but he had the humility to recognize like he wasn't just doing it for him, but he was setting the sort of expectation of the nation. And so it's this recognition that it's sort of this act of humility and also this act of leadership. It almost reminds me of scandal of just like he's making sure that his actions reflect the spirit of what he actually believes. Like he's trying to be a role model is I guess the word I'm trying to say. Like he's trying to role model for not just future politicians, but also like the American people. Like what does like what does this actually look like? Like what does living these virtues look like? I mean, sure, he could have stuck around and told people how to live, but he was like, I'm going to actually live it and lead sort of by example. And I think there's something in that as well. Okay, so the next song is the Adams administration, which pretty simple, Hamilton gets fired. That's it. Uh, so that brings us to our next song, which is called We Know. And in that, Jefferson, Madison, and Burr accuse Alexander of embezzlement. But to clear his name, he actually explains that he had an affair and how he covered it up with money, but he never embezzled. So he's like going to clear his name by confessing publicly to having an affair. And a friend of mine who is now a priest, Father Blood, posted a TikTok of like him in the confessional. And it was to some lyrics from this song. So I just thought I'd mention this real quick. I showed it to you before we got on. It's pretty funny. I recommend you guys check it out. Uh, go, go follow Father Blood. But it's Hamilton. He says, if I can prove that I never broke the law, do you promise not to tell another soul what you saw? Burr says, no one else was in the room where it happened. Hamilton. Is that a yes? Burr. Uh, yes. And so it's, it's kind of funny because he's a priest. And so yeah. you can't tell what's in the room when it happened. Seal of confession. Seal of confession. Yeah. I just talked about that today with uh, some of my middle schoolers, actually. Crazy enough, my middle schoolers requested a talk on excommunication. That's what they wanted to talk about this week. Good. Good. <laughs> hey, man. Yeah. They got, you got to know. They are curious. I love it. Which brings us to another super powerful song called Hurricane. This is entirely Hamilton after those three guys leave his office. And we walk through his story. We see how as everyone around him seems to die, he never does. And he attributes this to his ability to write. And so I'll, I'll read part of it here. It says, I wrote my way out of hell. I wrote my way to revolution. I was louder than the crack in the bell. I wrote Eliza love letters until she fell. I wrote the constitution and defended it well. And in the face of ignorance and resistance, I wrote financial systems into existence. And this is probably the most important part. And when my prayers to God were met with indifference, I picked up a pen and I wrote my own deliverance. And this is what we talked about earlier with the whole Pelagian heresy. But this is where we really see, like, he's finally admitting it out loud. Yeah. He decides that he is going to write his way out of this problem. He says, I'll write my way out, overwhelm them with honesty. This is the eye of the hurricane. This is the only way I can protect my legacy. And so he decides to write down the entire affair in detail and then send it out to the public. And that's called the Reynolds pamphlet which is our next song. So he publishes this whole thing, sends it out. And this is actually how his family learns about the affair through this pamphlet, which literally everyone is reading and talking Good. about. Yeah, it's so bad. I guess that's a way to do it. Probably not the best way, but... Right. In this, 
Angelica, who was now back in London, she hears about it all the way in London and comes back to the U.S. to be there for Eliza. And when she walks in the house, Alexander's like, oh, you came, like, thank goodness. Someone is here who's going to understand what I'm going through. And she's like, I'm not here for you. And just like completely shuts him down, which she should. She handles it really well. She says, put, put what we had aside. I'm standing at her side. You can never be satisfied. God, I hope you're satisfied. And this, is, this part is actually still in the Reynolds pamphlet, but it originally comes from a song that was cut out from the musical called Congratulations, which is even more savage, completely savage. But they took it out because they thought it focused too much on Angelica instead of the emotions Eliza was feeling. But I thought there was some interesting stuff. One of the lyrics from that song is... So scared of what your enemies will do, you're the only enemy you will ever seem to lose to. You know why Jefferson can do what he wants? He doesn't dignify schoolyard taunts with a response. So yeah, congratulations. Alexander says, it was an act of political sacrifice. Angelica says, sacrifice? I languished in a loveless marriage in London. I lived only to read your letters. I look at you and think, God, what have we done with our lives? And what did it really get us? And so this kind of begs me the question of who really was the one who sacrificed here? Because it, it wasn't really Alexander. He, as I said last week, he took his career and his priorities of his legacy and made everyone else sacrifice because of his reckless actions. And this is where we really see that blow up into space. Yeah. I mean, this is, it is the pride. And it's also, uh, I mean, it, it truly is the selfishness. And I think it's interesting because, again, like when we focus too much on our legacies, like I mentioned last week, I think this is sort of the natural conclusion. Again, I'll talk about that Norbertine priest. You know, he was talking about he received a question from a young man who was like, I'm not married yet, but I feel called to marriage. How can I be a good father? And his response was, the best way you can be a good father is to be a good husband, to love your wife well, to live your vocation well. And I think it's a reminder that like our vocation is higher than our abvocation. Like our legacy, like what we do for a living, like that stuff all actually comes second to the primary relationship by which we get to heaven because our main vocation is holiness. That's ultimately what we're all called to. And then our vocation, whether it be marriage, religious life, priesthood, that's the primary relationship by which we get to heaven. And then like our job, like all that stuff, sometimes the things that we focus the most on are actually like the lowest priority item. Yeah. I like that you brought that up though, because I think a lot of the times in marriages, what what seems to happen is that once they start to have children, the focus switches from being a good spouse to being a good parent. And then what happens is they invest their entire life into their children and not at all into each other or not enough into each other. And so the marriage starts to kind of crumble, but they don't really realize it because they're so distracted with the children. But once the kids start to grow up and become more independent or move out, we see more people getting divorced as soon as that happens. Well, yeah. And ultimately, like that is a disservice to the children, because in the same way that like broken families are so harmful, because, for instance, how is it that we're to understand our Heavenly Father to a certain extent, like our first encounter with our Heavenly Father is our earthly father, right? Like he is the like he shows us what fatherhood means in the same way marriage, the love between the mother and the father, the love that is in that marriage is the first experience we have with the love between Christ and his church. And so like that 
is what's shown to the children. And it almost does a disservice when you you ignore that or you neglect that. It actually does a disservice in the spiritual formation of the child. Yeah. And so this is actually going to bring us into, again, one of my favorite songs in this whole act, if not the whole musical itself, which is Burn. This is Eliza's reaction to everything she just heard from that pamphlet. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into a lot of it just because it is super powerful and emotional and an amazing song, but not too relevant to what we're kind of talking about here. So I'll just bring up one, one line here. So it says, you and your words obsessed with your legacy, your sentences border on senseless, and you are paranoid in every paragraph how they perceive you, 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 you. And so this goes back to his, his pride, right? And so how everything is about his, their perception of him. And she recognizes that. One side note for this song that I think is just brilliant. She sits there burning letters that he wrote to her when they were like falling in love and everything that she had kept. And she says she wants to burn them so that the history books can't see the good side of him because she's so frustrated with him. And so she actually burns them on stage and puts them into a trash can. And that's the only light for this scene. And they actually, I looked this up, they actually had a certain type of paper, which burns for like however many seconds or whatever. And they timed the song so that it ends, like the fire burns out and there's no light as she's walking off stage. So she's like walking off into perfect darkness, which has nothing to do with this episode, but I thought that was brilliant that they were able to match that down to the second of like yeah. the song ending. That's it's so cool. Yeah, that is actually really cool. And a side note from last week that I forgot to bring up, there's the song Dear Theodosia where they were singing to their children, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, and in that Leslie Odom Jr., the guy who plays Aaron Burr, there's a part in the song where he kind of bows his head and prays while Alexander is singing. And apparently in an interview, he admitted that since he had an unborn child who his wife was pregnant with at the time they were, they were doing the musical, he would actually take that time in the musical every single show to sit there and pray for his, his unborn child, which ended up being like over 400 times in the course of his run before his child was born. So I heard that last week and I was like, that is so stinking cool. That will bring us into our our next song, which is Blow Us All Away. So this jumps forward several years into the future. And now Philip, their son, who was nine, yeah, nine before, is now graduating college. And he challenges someone to a duel who spoke against Alexander. And so we see this idea of pride and duel. And as I mentioned before in my talk about the themes, what comes after duel? Death. And so he goes to Alexander for help. Alexander gives him his pistols and tells him not to actually shoot the guy, but to shoot up in the air and hope the other guy does the same so that they can have a draw. Which brings us to Stay Alive Reprise. And in this one, Philip is shot and he ends up dying with Alexander and Eliza at his side. So again, we see that theme of pride, duel, death, loss. And that brings us to a super, super emotional song, but I think one of the biggest hinge points of the entire musical, it's Quiet Uptown. So this song is coping with the loss of their son, Philip. It starts with Angelica. She says, there are moments that the words don't reach. There's suffering too terrible to name. 
You hold your child as tight as you can and push away the unimaginable. The moments when you're in so deep, it feels easier to just swim down. I mean, that's pretty obvious, but talking about just giving up, you know, it's easier to give up than to endure the suffering. And so in the next several lyrics, we hear from Alexander what he does. And I think there's a lot of insight here because he talks about his ways of coping with suffering, essentially, even though he's not explicitly saying that, that's, that's what I get out of it. Let me kind of walk through there what he does. So first he says, I spend hours in the garden. We've talked before about how you can find the truth and the evidence of God within nature and beauty. The next thing that he brings up, he says, I walk alone to the store and it's quiet uptown. I never liked the quiet before. So we see him finally slowing down, finally putting his well-being and his family's well-being before his career. But him saying, I never liked the quiet before. Again, we talk all the time about how it's within the quiet that we hear God's voice. And so he has this opportunity to finally encounter God because he's finally slowing down. He's finally experiencing quiet. The next line, he says, I take the children to church on Sunday, a sign of the cross at the door, and I pray. That never used to happen before. This one's a little bit more obvious. Obviously, worship, church, cross, God again. And so what I noticed is each of the things he lists seems to be pointing him to God. And it's, it's finally then that he starts to have, as we talked about at the beginning, when we were talking about the, the themes and the hero's journey, this is finally him having that transformation and that atonement towards the, the end of the story where he's finally converting. He's becoming a different person. And then he sings to Eliza. And this whole time she's been silent, hasn't really talked to him. Look at where we are. Look at where we started. I know I don't deserve you, Eliza, but hear me out. That would be enough. If I could spare his life, if I could trade his life for mine, he'd be standing here right now and you would smile and that would be enough. I don't pretend to know the challenges we're facing. I know there's no replacing what we've lost and you need time, but I'm not afraid. I know who I married. Just let me stay by your side. That would be enough. And then Angelica sings, There are moments that the words don't reach. There is grace too powerful to name. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. They are standing in the garden. Alexander by Eliza's side. She takes his hand. Eliza, it's quiet uptown. And then the entire cast, except for those two in the middle, sings forgiveness. Can you imagine? In this moment, after he's had an affair, He has told literally the entire world what he did. And then he was complicit in his son's death, essentially. She takes his hand, forgives him, and goes with him into the quiet. Yeah. Gives me the chills, dude. Yeah. I mean, it's just proof that marriage is at its core a sacrament of mercy. Yeah. There's actually a quote. So Avatar The Last Airbender is all on Netflix and it's all over the social media. But then it's sequel series, The Legend of Korra. There's a quote that Aang says to Korra where he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but says, you know, we, when we've reached our lowest point is when we are open to the greatest change. And I think there is something that you see here too, that like God obviously doesn't will suffering, but he, that he uses it all. And sometimes it's when we kind of hit that rock bottom that we actually, for the first time, actually are willing to turn to God. Not that we need to hit rock bottom to turn to him, 
but sometimes like that's when we realize that we are powerless and we need to actually begin to turn to the the only power that remains and i think there's some wisdom in that and i think that we see that in hamilton where he's tried to write his own deliverance and he realizes that he can't do that that he can't write his son back into existence and she had been kind of warning him about that this whole time of just saying take a break spend your time with your family because that's that's what's important exactly so that brings us to our next song which it's, it's kind of funny the very first part of the song is can we get back to politics and the next character is crying and is like yes please like just crying from the last scene it's breaking, <laughs> breaking the fourth wall but it, it, it's pretty funny so it's called the election of 1800 and this is when burr runs against Thomas Jefferson for president and everyone wants Hamilton's opinion on who he would endorse. And even though Burr is in the same party as Jefferson and Jefferson and Hamilton hate each other, Hamilton actually endorses Jefferson because Mm -hmm. he says, I have never agreed with Jefferson once. We have fought on like 75 different fronts, but when all is said and done, Jefferson has beliefs, Burr has none. So it goes back to what we talked about last week. For the sake of time, we should probably not get into that topic again, but if you haven't listened to it last week, go back and check that out. If you have no idea what we're talking about, go back and listen to that episode anyways, and you can hear more about that discussion there. And the next song is Burr is pretty furious at Alexander Hamilton for betraying him because they up until this point they were close friends so this is called your obedient servant and it's actually pretty funny because they are writing letters to each other and acting very formal saying dear Alexander and then ending with your obedient servant a dot burr and then Hamilton responds likewise but essentially what happens is Burr calls out Alexander for speaking out in public against him. Alexander says, I've been speaking out in public against you basically the entire time we've known each other and then sends him a list of 30 years of disagreements. And so rather than apologizing, Hamilton, as he used to do, kind of like throws gas on the fire Mm. and they end up setting up a duel. So we see Hamilton right after this, this healing happened with his wife, he immediately goes into the same kind of situation. And while he is writing that letter to to Burr, setting up this duel, Eliza walks in for the next song, which is called Best of Wives and Best of Women. It's very, very short. But Eliza says, why do you write like you're running out of time? Alexander shushes her. Eliza says, come back to bed. That would be enough. Hamilton, I'll be back before you know I'm gone. Eliza come back to sleep. In this, she doesn't even realize that she's saving his life in more ways than one. But if he would have listened to her, he wouldn't have gone to the duel. Look at history. You know what happens next. It shouldn't be that much of a spoiler. But in this, he talks to her as she's walking away and calls her best of wives, best of women. And he recognizes how lucky he is to have someone who who is that, that kind of moral compass for him, that person who, who makes him a better person. And yet, he chooses to ignore that in this moment and he goes to the duel and it actually takes place pretty much the same place where Philip, his son was shot. And as the bullet is shot, there's a cool cut scene. One of the other actors kind of like role plays the bullet. And there's actually a lot of like theories on this that I I found where people recognize that the actress that 
plays the bullet, if you will, also plays a girl that Philip was kind of hitting on mm. in the song where he challenges the guy for the duel. And so it's like he's literally flirting with death. There's all kinds of theories with that. But it's this really cool scene where the bullet is, is flying towards Alexander and there's this cut scene and he has this kind of really in-depth conversation where he says, legacy, what is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. I wrote some notes at the beginning of a song someone else will sing for me. America, you great unfinished symphony you sent for me. You let me make a difference. A place where even orphan immigrants can leave their fingerprints and rise up. I'm running out of time. I'm running out of time and my time's up. And then he starts listing off all the characters that he can see, quote, on the other side, right? So characters who have died. And so he, he can see heaven, apparently. And he says, teach me how to say goodbye. Rise up, rise up. Eliza, my love, take your time. I'll see you on the other side. Raise a glass to freedom. And so you notice that he doesn't recognize or experience freedom. Even though he won the war, he was building America. He doesn't experience freedom until he sees heaven. And when this cut scene ends, he's shot and ends up dying. And then Burr kind of closes out the song and talks about how he's always portrayed as being a bad guy because he was doing this, but he was really just trying to protect himself so he can go home to his daughter, essentially. But that's where Hamilton dies. And we have one song left. This one's called Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. And one of the cool things about this song is we see what seems like every song from the musical kind of overlapped and compiled into one song. If you've noticed like phrases that I've said repeatedly come up, this whole musical has so many of those. And if you look at the links that I've put in the description below, you can see someone actually did the research to see what songs overlapped all of the lyrics and stuff. But essentially, this is the summary of the story, a farewell to Alexander, and a whole lot of just sheer epicness put into one song. Eliza says, I put myself back in the narrative. I stop wasting time on tears. I live another 50 years. It's not enough. I interview every soldier who fought by your side. I try to make sense of your thousands of pages of writing. You really do write like you're running out of time. I rely on Angelica and we tell your story. This goes to show that when Alexander said, take your time, she did. She lived for another 50 years. She lived into like her 90 something, which was oh, pretty wow. impressive for back then. And she, this whole song, she kind of lists all the cool things she does. And we'll talk about that in a second. But right here, she's talking about the power of story, which we talk about all the time in this podcast. And it's the idea that our story is powerful and shouldn't be overlooked because our story is a taste of Christ's story as Christians. That's what it means to tell our testimony, right? When we share our story, we are sharing that part of the story that we experience in Christ's story. And so there is a power to that. And then she says, and I'm still not through. I ask myself, what would you do if you had more time? The Lord in his kindness, he gives me what you always wanted. He gives me more time. Can I show you what I'm most proud of? I established the first private orphanage in New York City. I helped to raise hundreds of children. I get to see them growing up. In their eyes, I see you, Alexander. I see you every time. And when my time is up, have I done enough? Will they tell my story? Oh, I can't wait to see you again. It's only a matter of time. 
And the last words of the whole musical are, who tells your story? Again, going back to that story. And so we see she ends up doing like everything that he wanted to become. She does all this, these good works. And then she asks, will they tell my story? She's the reason why his story is so remembered. Obviously, there's probably more to it than that. But she did do a lot on his behalf after he passed away. And someone pointed this out that I thought was brilliant. And I hope it's true. They even interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda and Pippa, who plays Eliza, and asked if this theory is true. But at the end, there's this gasp where Eliza is led by Alexander out to front stage and she looks out and she just gasps and starts to like almost weep with joy. And so there's this question of what does she see? And so she's been asked and she says every time it's different. And so it's kind of a combination of a lot of different things. But the theories are she sees Alexander. She sees like Alexander in heaven. She sees God. She sees heaven itself. Or my personal favorite one that I hope, hope, hope this is true in this song, when she says, will they tell my story? Lin-Manuel Miranda playing Alexander Hamilton as the ghost walks behind her. And there's a theory that when he passes by her on stage, he ceases being Alexander and is now playing himself, Lin-Manuel Miranda. And he takes her hand and leads her to the front of the stage and shows her her legacy. So breaking the fourth wall shows her as Lin-Manuel Miranda I made, this, I made this musical to tell your story. So in answering her question, will they tell my story? He shows her the massive audience out there and she recognizes that and is overwhelmed. Mm. I just thought that was kind of interesting, but yeah. that's the song. So there's, there's a lot to this musical. There's like 46 different songs, I think. Oh, and since I promised to talk about it and I put it in the, the links below, there is that research from Leah Labresco, who is a Catholic writer, and she talked about the like total word count. So it's like 21,000 words in two hours and 22 minutes of songs, which averages out for about 144 words per minute, which is the fastest of any musical. And so she like put it all together and figured out how long it would take at like, if Hamilton was sung at the pace of a normal song, it would be like six hours or something like that. And then all the other musicals she measured out averaged like anywhere from 60 to 80 words per minute, which is the slowest songs in Hamilton. So it's just, it's super fast. Even though there's a lot of tempo changes, it is very, very fast. So that's kind of interesting. We've talked a lot about timing and speed and how Alexander lives his life always moving fast, fast, fast. With that, any final thoughts or challenges? Oh, man. I think the only two things that really strike me is one, take some time to Sabbath this week to actually take time to dedicate to prayer and rest. And the other is on topic of forgiveness. Aquinas says sort of the baseline forgiveness that we need, like that's necessary for salvation is to just be like, I'm willing to share heaven with that person. But complete forgiveness is, and actually this is really interesting, but complete forgiveness is actually like, the willingness to accept that person back in to like love them fully and to like be vulnerable with them again in that way to like be able to like love them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just wonder if when we take that time this week to Sabbath and to pray, if we can sort of think of someone in our life. And obviously that's like, there's conditions to that, right? Like the person actually has to be repentant for you to be able to fully forgive them. 
you know, to sort of think about like to take an opportunity to actually forgive or to, to show mercy, whether it be corporal or spiritual work of mercy this week, sort of build our legacy in that way. And that is actually what I was going to say, but better worded. So <laughs> well done. Yeah, Thanks. those those were the exact two challenges I was going to offer as well. So Sabbath well and offer forgiveness or seek forgiveness if if that's what you need to do as well. Yeah. So with that, do you have any shout outs, Steve? It's <sighs> uh, a good question. I will shout out Maddie. She is the person who actually introduced me to the talks from Father Sebastian that I've referenced several times in this little episode. And then I don't know if I have anyone else. Do you? I have two, two people who actually requested us doing this episode. So the first is Annie Rodriguez. And then the other one is patron of the show, Ty Halligan. Hopefully y'all enjoyed our discussion. So with that, Steve, where can the people find us? All over the place. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at, at OnTheAdventure2, as well as on Facebook or our website, which is thechristinculture.com. Let us know what you think about this episode. Let us know if there are topics you would like us to cover in the future. And also let us know what you are enjoying us doing and what you'd like to see us do. Sort of be willing to give us feedback. Yeah. And uh, please feel free to rate and review the show. Every time someone does that, it helps us reach new people. And we really appreciate that. So with that, thank you guys for joining us this week on the adventure. And we'll see you next week.